Well, at this time, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter number 4. Philippians chapter number 4, and uh, we'll be reading verses 17 through the end of the chapter, through the end of the book. Hard to believe that we're here. This last message, Philippians chapter 4, verses 17 through 23, and if you found that, if you would join me in standing for the reading of God's Word out of respect and reverence for the Holy Word of God. Philippians 4 and verse number 17 says this, Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet, greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And let's pray together one more time. Lord, we're grateful for your word. Thank you for this letter that was written to this church family and the lessons that we can take and apply to our own church here at Cornerstone, but also our own individual lives as well. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn the lessons that you want us to learn from this passage today. Open our hearts, help us to have a willing heart to do <clears throat> to do what your word says. And uh, we'll thank you for all that takes place in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So hard to believe that uh, we started this journey through the book of Philippians way back in June. And uh, we began a journey through the book of Philippians, and today we come to the very last message in this series. And I have to be honest, I'm a little sad. Uh, I know you may be kind of going, okay, looking forward to what's next. But I am going to be sad. I've enjoyed this book. It's been an encouragement and a blessing to me. Uh, I've grown because of it, and uh, and I hope and pray that you have as well, of course, um, because I'm not doing it just for my own health, although I do benefit from it. Um, and I thought today would be good, right before we get into the uh, into this last message, to do a brief review of some of the high points in this book as a, as a quick little review. So back in chapter one. Uh, if you recall, remember where Paul was when he wrote this book. Did everybody get a bulletin? Anybody need a bulletin? We got everybody a bulletin. Okay, good. Because um, there is a little handout in there that helps uh, with taking notes if, if you would like to do that, if that would be helpful for you. Well, back in chapter number one, we remembered where Paul was when he wrote this book. Uh, he wasn't, um, as I've said many times, he wasn't in a beautiful five-star resort sipping on Chick-fil-A Arnold Palmer. Um, although I wouldn't mind doing that today, although I can't, unfortunately, because they are closed. No, Paul was uh, under house arrest there in Rome, and uh, he was attached to a Roman soldier 24-7, and uh, it was an uncomfortable place to be. It was not an ideal situation, and yet this book mentions the word joy, the word rejoice, several different times. 
And if Paul could rejoice in his circumstances uh, or during his circumstances, certainly you and I can as well. And that's been the crux of this whole uh, series. Well, in chapter 1, though, we saw uh, Paul start the book by expressing his love and his appreciation for this church family. There was, There's no question that that Paul had a, a very unique and special relationship with the, uh, this church here at Philippi. Unlike the other letters that he wrote, there was, there was a real intimate relationship between the church and Paul. And, uh, we, we saw that a lot in chapter number one. And then also in, in chapter one, he explains his prayer requests for these believers. And uh, he explains how he's praying for them. And, and a lot of times we pray for one another, you know, and we say we're praying for one. There are some great things in chapter 1, some great prayer requests as we pray for one another, some specific things that uh, we looked at on uh, how to pray for one another, not just, Lord, please bless so-and-so, although that's okay, uh, but here's some specific things to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, we saw that in chapter 1. Also in chapter 1, we saw Paul rejoicing in the sovereignty of God as the gospel continued to go forth in spite of his circumstances. I mean, he he wanted to be out there, you know, he's kind of like, get me out of this cage, I want to go preach the gospel. But the truth was, the gospel was still going out, and it wasn't exactly the way he would have picked it or chosen it to, to happen, but it was still going forth, and, and Paul was rejoicing in the sovereignty of God and allowing all this to happen and seeing God's hand of provision in all of it. And so we saw that in chapter 1. He also encouraged them to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Philippians 1.27 is a very uh, wonderful verse in uh, chapter number 1. Well, chapter 2, he encourages unity and for these brothers and sisters to have, if you recall this message, to have a like mind, a lowly mind, a loving mind, and then to have the Lord's mind. And, of course, that leads us to the Kenosis passage, uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, uh, which we uh, looked at the Lord's mind and, and how uh, Jesus had the mind of service, He had the mind of submission, and He had the mind of, a sac- of sacrifice. Later in chapter 2, He uh, talks about three living examples of people who were striving to have the mind of Christ, who were trying to have these like-loving lowly and the Lord's mind in their lives. And Paul was one. Um, He referred to himself in chapter 2. And then also uh, Timothy was and Epaphroditus was as well. Well, then we move. So that was about halfway through the book. And uh, then chapter 3, we were instructed to rejoice in the Lord uh, no matter the circumstances. Even if your team gives up nine touchdowns in a playoff game yesterday, uh, we can still rejoice in the Lord. I certainly can't rejoice in the defense uh, because there was none yesterday. Anyway, uh, we were uh, we saw that we were instructed to rejoice in the Lord and to beware of false teachers in chapter three. And then uh, he goes and Paul shares his resume and his testimony of faith in Christ alone. How it's nothing we can do to earn our way to a relationship with God, to earn our spot in heaven. It's only by faith in Christ alone. And then Paul shares with us his passion for Christ and his desire to go on to higher ground and how we can get there as well. And he gives us a a tutorial, if you remember that message, 
on how we can also uh, go on to higher ground in our Christian lives. In chapter 4, Paul urges this church family to stay faithful in spite of the circumstances they were dealing with. And then he does what uh, most people would be very uncomfortable with. He actually calls out two ladies by name uh, who were uh, quarreling in the church. There was strife and division there and, and tells them to be of the same mind in the Lord. We also learn the importance of right thinking in chapter number four. We learned to think with praise, to think with perspective, to think with prayer. Remember, turning every care into a prayer. Uh, we learned how to pray with peace, or think with peace, with think with purity, and think with practice to go and and do it, not just know about it, but go and do it. Then we learned that Paul was thankful for the charity shown to him by this church family at the end of this chapter here. He was thankful for also the contentment that he had learned uh, in Christ, and it was something that he did indeed learn how to do. It wasn't that he was out of the womb, a uh, professional, content person. No, uh, no one is that way. We all come out of the womb uh, whining and complaining about our life, about our lot in life, how no one cares for me, no one wants to feed me. Then you have teenagers, and that continues uh, to happen. Well, he was also thankful for the confidence that comes through relationship with Christ. And of course, one of the more popular verses in this entire book is Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. And we looked at that uh, last time. Well, and that brings us to the passage we just read a few moments ago. And uh, the lessons we can learn about the great investment. The great investment. When life, there are a lot of good things to invest in, aren't there? Financially speaking. Um, some people invest in real estate. And that turns out to be a good thing, unless it's 2008. And then it's not such a good thing. Um, a lot of good things to invest in. The stock market, um, certainly under uh, the current administration, the stock market has gone on the upward trajectory, and I'm thankful for that. But there have been other times where it has not gone the right direction. Um, some people invest in education, thinking that if I in, in invest financially in my education, then I could potentially make more than I'm making now, and certainly that's, that's true, uh, or can be true. The greatest investment of all that I want to look at this morning is the investment in the Lord's work, because that's what will matter for all of eternity. The Christian life is a life of selflessness. The Christian life is supposed to be a life of giving. Acts chapter 20 and verse 35 says, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, Paul said, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Those are the words of Jesus. We don't have them recorded in the Gospels. They're recorded uh, in the book of Acts. Evidently, he said that at some point. We don't know exactly where. The Lord did say it is more blessed to give than to receive. A few days ago, as you know, was Christmas. One of my favorite parts of the day was seeing how excited our children were not to receive their gifts, but to give their gifts. Um, when we, it was time, you know, after we ate breakfast, they were kind of like, what do we have to eat before, before the gifts? 
That's kind of a waste of time. Everybody except for Seth, he was okay with that decision. Um, uh, but everybody else wanted to get the gifts. And then after, okay, after we eat, it's time to read the Christmas story. Of course, me being a pastor, aren't you glad you were not raised in a pastor's home? We read like four chapters. It was like, oh, how long is the Christmas story? <laughs> You've just extended it. And uh, it was awesome. And uh, I, I, I just had kind of this sin- you know, sinister little laughing going on in, in my heart. You know, Let's see how long we can make this lesson go. Well, then it was time to actually get over and do gifts and and uh and one of our children said uh, can can we can we give can we give it like by person like all the gifts that I got can I give them out first and then everybody opens all the gifts from me and so we did that and it was neat to see these children giving gifts to their siblings and even to their parents um because they loved us they they wanted to give and it was it was neat well Everyone except for maybe Mark. Uh, he still would rather receive than give at this point in his life. But uh, uh, pray for him to develop that, that spiritual gift there. But it was neat to see these children get into the giving spirit. And that is what the Christian life is supposed to be about, is giving. Now, in the last message we looked here in the book of Philippians, we looked at Paul's thank you note for this financial gift that he received from this church family. Now, obviously, some of us know that Paul was a tent maker by trade, but he couldn't really do that full time. He couldn't really um, do that enough to keep the food on the table for him. And so he did rely upon the giving of churches that he helped start to help support him financially. And and this church was one of the more generous of the bunch, and uh, they were faithful. Uh, The Bible says in verse number, uh, let's see here, in verse number... 16, for even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. So this was something that they did on a regular basis. They were faithful in their giving towards uh, the Lord's work through the Apostle Paul. And so Paul was writing a thank you note to express his gratitude for uh, what this church family did for him in their giving. Now, today we're going to look at the encouragement he gives them regarding this gift. And this encouragement, we're going to learn three very important lessons about investing in the Lord's work, the great investments. And I'm going, I'd like to share those three lessons with you this morning. First of all, lesson number one, this investment produces fruit. This investment, investing in the Lord's work produces fruit. Verse number 16, again, for even in Thessalonica, he sent once and again unto my necessity. Then he says, not because I desire a gift, not because I'm going, I'm checking my mailbox to see uh, if you can, if I, if there's any financial gift coming my way. It's not, that, that's not what Paul was about. He wasn't desiring a gift, but he desired that fruit would abound to their account. And the Lord's work does, or investing in the Lord's work does produce Tremendous fruit. Um, a couple uh, explanations or, or descriptions of this fruit. First of all, it's exponential fruit. It's a really good investment, in other words. When you give towards missions, you're investing in people who are going to reach uh, people with the gospel of Christ that you cannot reach. Matthew chapter 13, verse 23 says, 
He that received the, he that received seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some an hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 13 is, look, some people are going to get saved and they're going to go and, and, and reach a whole bunch of people uh, with the gospel. And some are going to reach a bunch of people. And some are going to reach a few people. But look, when you and I give towards missions and towards missionaries, you and I are part of the process in getting the gospel to the ends of the, world, ends of the earth. And every soul saved through the mission's outreach is fruit that abounds to your account. Now, some missionaries are going to reach many, and some will reach few because of the, uh, because of who they are and because of the field in which they're serving. There are some that are more, uh, ripe than others. Uh, the butlers were missionaries in the Philippines. And, uh, that would maybe be a more ripe harvest than, uh, say, uh, Israel, a missionary in Israel, or to a, maybe a Muslim country. And yet, every soul, though, that is saved is fruit that abounds to your account. Uh, but together, all the missionaries are going to reach more than any of us can reach by ourselves. And so, when we invest financially into our missions program, uh, we can produce fruit that is indeed exponential. Because those people who get saved and get reached through our missionaries, hopefully they don't just stay and be by themselves. No, hopefully they then go out and reach people themselves. And so the fruit that gets abounded to our account and to uh, your account if you are giving is exponential. It's hard to really put a number on it. Um, and so really this is a tremendous investment, far greater than you would have in any, you know, stock tip that your accountant may tell you about. Um, this, this one is going to produce exponential fruit. So I think it's a no-brainer to give towards missions and towards the Lord's work. So uh, investing in the Lord's work produces fruit. It, it, it produces exponential fruit. It also produces eternal fruit. Financially speaking, there are a lot of poor investments out there. For example, buying a brand new car. According to Carfax.com, a new car off the lot loses 10% of its value after the very first month. If that's a $50,000 car, that's a bummer to lose $5,000 like that. And then $20,000 after, or I'm sorry, 20% after the, after 12 months of ownership. Yet investing in the Lord's work will never decrease in value. In fact, it actually increases over time. Um, and so really, the that's why I'm calling this message the greatest or the great investment. Remember the words of Christ when he said in Matthew 6, 19, Lay, up not, uh, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where rot moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. No, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The fruit that gets abounded to my account when I give towards the Lord's work is eternal. It's not going to fade away. It's not going to break. Um, 
my family uh, got together, my extended family got together and got these boys a uh, game table for Christmas. This game table, uh, you guys heard about it in Sunday school. Uh, Mark was sharing it with you. Uh, but this game table is a four-in-one game table. It has ping pong, it has foosball, it has pool, and it has air hockey. All in one table. And it's been a lot of fun since we've gotten it. I just don't think that that thing is going to last that long. <laughs> Especially with the boys in which are playing it. Um, I know how they treat things. And I just don't know how long this particular table is going to last. And uh, But it's fun and, and we'll enjoy it while we have it. But look, the when we give towards the Lord's work, this is investing in something that's going to last for all of eternity. It's not just going to last for the rest of his life. It's going to last for all of eternity. When we invest in our homes, and I'm, you know, I like to invest in our home and, and make it nice and make it functional. But the truth of the matter is, one day this is going to burn up. And, and I certainly can't take this home with me. I'm sure it pales in comparison to the mansion that God has for me in heaven. So yet, uh, a lot of our focus, though, goes on the temporal things, and we kind of give very little mental thought to the things that matter for all of eternity. John 15 and verse 16, Jesus said, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. You see, these missionaries that go out into the world and preach the gospel and people come to know the Lord as their Savior, people trust Christ um, and uh, become Christians, that fruit is going to remain for all of eternity. Look, we're not talking about mere dollars and cents here. We're talking about the souls of men that will spend eternity in either heaven or hell. The money used to reach people with the gospel of Christ around the world produces fruit that will last for all of eternity. We will be forever grateful for those who have been saved through our giving. And by the way, I'm sure they will be forever grateful for the gifts that were given to get the missionaries there, to get the gospel to them. It was missionary Jim Elliott who said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Look, you, you say, well, I want to get the, the, the most expensive car ever. I want to get the new cyber truck uh, that Tesla's putting out that doesn't have glass that really will be shatterproof. Um, I want to get one of those. I want to, I want to, you know, we're investing in things that aren't going to matter for all of eternity. We're investing in things that will burn up, will fade, will decrease in value. But when you give towards our missions program, when you give to, towards the Lord's work, you're giving towards something that will matter for all of eternity. I'm not against, against investing for your future and being a wise steward. I think that that's um, important. God's Word teaches us that we should be wise with our finances and, and invest for our future even here on earth. But please do not neglect investing in eternal things like reaching the souls of men and women and boys and girls with the gospel of Jesus Christ through your tithes and missions giving. Don't neglect investing in things that matter for eternity. So in verse 17 here, Paul was emphasizing the eternal bank account of the Philippians rather than his own earthly bank account. 
He said, I don't desire a gift. It's not what I'm after. I'm not after padding my bank account and making myself wealthy. No, I'm, I'm excited for you because every soul that gets saved is fruit to your account. And so that is a tremendous, uh, tremendous lesson that we can learn, that investing in the Lord's work produces fruit. I'll read this and we'll move on to the next thought here. J.L. Kraft, he's head of the Kraft Cheese Corporation, or was at one point. He had given approximately 25% of his enormous income to Christian causes for many years. And here's the comment that he said, The only investment I ever made which has paid consistently increasing dividends is the money I have given to the Lord. You know, I again, ho- hope that you have some good other investments, but there is one investment that I can promise you will produce exponential and eternal fruit, and that is investing in the Lord's work. And I would encourage you to do that. All right, second lesson we learn from this passage is this investment also pleases God. This investment pleases God. In verse number 18, Paul said, I have all, and I abound, and I am full. He says, man, I, I really don't need anything. This is wonderful. This is great. I'm, I'm, I'm good. Having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, he said, boy, that gift was a blessing. It, it filled me up. But then he goes and express, or explains this offering that he received and uh, describes it. It was an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable. And then here it is, well-pleasing to God. He said, yeah, I, I mean, it pleased me, but, but ultimately it pleased the Lord. And look, I, you know, we had the privilege of giving a little bit of, uh, of a Christmas offering to our missionaries. And I'm thankful for that. And I'm sure that it was a blessing to them to receive a little extra that month. But you know who was more pleased with it? Was the Lord. You know, it's an opportunity for us to please our God when we give. In giving and investing in the Lord's work, you and I have the opportunity to do something that pleases God. Now, an immature Christian is only concerned with God pleasing himself. Lord, what, what have you done for me lately, God? And that's, that's what an immature Christian's mentality is. What have you done for me? I, I mean, I've got needs and I need you to do something. But a mature Christian is focused on pleasing God. Lord, I'm not needing anything. I, I just want to please you. I mean, you've given everything I need. I, I, you gave me salvation in Christ. I get to spend eternity with you. I do not have to spend eternity in hell. I am so grateful for that. What can I do to please you? And that's what a mature Christian is focused on. And I hope that you are so thankful for what the Lord did for you that you have a heart and a desire to please Him. I hope when it comes to learning how to please God, I hope that you are all ears. Like, let me let me know what the Bible says about pleasing God because I want to do it. I want to please my Lord because of all the things He is and has done in my life. Well, thankfully, God has told us in His Word ways in which we can please Him. Ways that we can bring God pleasure. So what are they? Very briefly, I want to share with you six ways in which we can please God with our lives. First of all, we can please Him through a life of faith. A life of faith pleases God. 
Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. If you don't live by faith, you're not going to be able to please God. But conversely, if you do live by faith, that does bring pleasure to God. He does love that. Look, when someone actually believes what God says about himself is true, and then goes and acts upon that truth, God is well pleased. So that means when someone learns from Scripture that God is holy, and then, and then they decide to stay away from sin, God is well pleased. When someone learns that God is truth, and then decides to tell the truth in a difficult situation, God is pleased. When someone learns that God is faithful, good, and trustworthy, and then they choose not to worry, fret, or get nervous, but instead to rest and trust in the Lord, God is well pleased. When God calls someone to take the next step in their Christian life, and they follow by faith, that pleases God. You say, how can I please God? I can please God by living by faith by getting in God's Word, finding out what it says, and living according to it. That's living by faith. And God's well pleased when we do. Next, a life of purity. A life of purity brings pleasure to God. When you and I choose to live a holy, pure life, God is well pleased. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul says this, Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. And then he says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. There are what we would call Christians, and I put air quotes around them because I don't know for sure if they're saved or not, because they sure don't act like they are. They're living however they want to live in this very corrupt culture. We obviously would all agree that we live in a wicked society where temptation abounds, where Yes, we have the internet in our pockets. Thank you, Steve Jobs. But that also brings a level, a tremendous level of temptation that I didn't have when I was a teenager, and I'm glad I didn't. And so you teen boys, be careful. But when you and I choose to uh, keep our eyes pure, when we choose to keep our minds pure, when we choose to keep our bodies pure, He is well pleased. God is still pleased with a man and a woman standing at a wedding altar still pure. When she wears that wedding dress and it is indeed white because she is a virgin, God is well pleased with that still in 2019, almost 2020. I realize the culture isn't well pleased with that, but God is. And the Christian, the mature Christian is saying, Lord, how can I please you? Oh, a life of purity pleases you? I will do it. After a violent storm one night, a large tree, which over the years had become a stately giant, was found lying across the pathway in a park. Nothing but a splintered stump was left. How could this happen? Well, closer examination showed that it was rotten at the core because thousands of tiny insects had eaten away at its heart. The weakness of that tree was not brought on by the sudden storm. No, no, it began the very moment the first insect nested within its bark. 
It all starts with one website. It starts with one permissible action by a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Uh, maybe just this. And then before you know it, the tree is over and it has fallen. God is well pleased with our purity. And like Joseph of old, in the book of Genesis, as he was tempted, no doubt, by Potiphar's wife to lie with her and to have an immoral relationship with her. The Bible says he left his coat and ran out. And as many preachers have pointed out, he left his coat. He lost his coat, but he kept his character. He kept his purity. And God mightily blessed his life, uh, not just because of that, I'm sure, but that certainly was a reason. God is well pleased with a life of purity. And teenagers, God wants you to be pure. And I'm sorry it's hard in this culture. And I apologize for our generation not protecting you greater. But you need to decide that you're going to decide to please God with your life through your purity. Thirdly, how else can we please God with our lives? Well, also a life of submission. A life of submission brings great pleasure to God. And again, the mature Christian is saying, Lord, I'm looking for ways that I can please you. I'm looking for ways that I can bring honor and glory to your life and to bring you a smile. Well, one of those ways is a life of submission. Colossians chapter 3, verse 20 says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Well-pleasing unto the Lord. Now, the truth of the matter is, many of us like to be large and in charge, don't we? Yet the Christian life is also not a life, not a life just of giving, it's also a life of submission. For those uh, theologians out there, do you remember why Satan was kicked out of heaven? It's because he wanted to be one, the one calling the shots, didn't he? We all like to call the shots. We don't like to be the ones under the ones calling the shots. And yet, the Bible says a life of submission is well-pleasing unto the Lord. So one great way to please God is to submit to the authority in our lives. Young people, are you looking for ways to please God with your life? I hope you are. I hope you're sitting there going, I want to know how I can please God. Okay, submit to your parents. Obey and honor your mom and dad. I don't think that there's a mom and dad in here who, okay, maybe my wife and I are the exception to this, who sit at the table going, how can we make our kids' lives miserable? My wife and I do that on our date nights. How can we ruin their lives? Let's see. And we all have them alphabetized. I mean, we have a pretty long list. No, no parent does that. And so when your parents tell you to do something, teens, they're not trying to ruin your lives. They're trying to protect your life. So submit to your parents. And when you do, God is well pleased. What about wives? Wives, submit to your own husbands. And notice that, your own husbands. I was thinking about this as I was studying this week, and I thought, you know, Father's Day, you know, we 
Mother's Day, right, we, we, we talk about how wonderful mom is. And, 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 and mom is wonderful. And then, and then we go to Father's Day and we talk about the social woes in America and we blame fathers for it. And we talk about fathers needing to stand up and be a man and, and to be the spiritual leader in the home. And certainly that's true. But you know, I'm, I'm, I'm saddened to the fact of many men, I think, are not able to be the spiritual leaders in their home because wives won't let them. Wives are not submissive. The only reason that I'm able to be the spiritual leader in my home is because that lady submits to the leadership. If she's not willing to submit, friend, it's going to be very difficult for me to be the spiritual leader in my home. I don't have that strong domineering uh, personality, and so I need her to deliberately let me lead and to deliberately submit. I wonder how many dads who ran away from their homes would have stayed if their wives were submissive. I'm not saying what they did was right. I'm not saying they have a pass or an excuse. But I'm saying, I wonder if the wives in their homes were a little more submissive if they would have just stayed. Or Maybe it was like, you know what? I can't do anything right. She wants to be the one in charge. I'll let her be the one in charge. I'm out of here. I don't know if that's the case in a lot of them, but I just can't help but wonder if maybe... That's a reason. Wives, submit to your own husbands. And when you do submit to your own husbands, guess what? God is well pleased. Church member, submit to the authority of your pastor. Again, I'm not trying to ruin anyone's life. I'm trying to be an encouragement and a blessing. But sometimes faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes a friend needs to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Sometimes you don't need to shoot the messenger because <laughs> that's really all I am is a messenger. Church members submit to the authority of the pastor and when you do, God is well pleased. Citizen of the United States of America, citizen of Oklahoma, citizen of Moore, Oklahoma, submit to the ordinances of man, even the speed laws. Okay, let's move on. Employee, submit to your boss. I know you may have good ideas. I know you may want to help, uh, but make sure you go through the right channels and submit to your, uh, to the authority of your boss. And ultimately, and obviously, most importantly, all of us need to submit to the authority of God in our own lives. Is there something that God has been pressing you to do? I'm encouraging you to stop fighting and submit to Him. To submit to His authority and to obey. And when you do, this pleases God. So a life of submission. Fourthly, a life of praise. A life of praise. Hebrews 13, verse 15, By Him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. And then the next verse later says, With such sacrifices, God is well pleased. God's pleased when you and I live a life of praise, when you and I are uh, praising God in the good times and in the bad. And we've been talking about that in this series, and, and we spent some time last month talking about uh, having a thankful heart and all of those things. 
Psalm 69, verse 30, I want to share this verse, though, when it comes to uh, giving thanks and praising the Lord. Psalm 69, verse 30 says, I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify Him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bullock that hath horns and hoofs. Now, I know today we don't give offerings of ox or bullock. That'd be kind of a, I'd feel bad for the guys doing the offering, you know. Those would be pretty heavy offering plates. (laughs) Why do you have to give three oxen today? You know, stop being so generous. This is heavy. You're breaking my back here. See, when we live a life of praise, this pleases the Lord more than us giving sacrificially uh, an offering. And you say, well, aren't you talking about giving financially today? Yeah, I am. I'm also talking about ways in which we can please the Lord because um, that's what a mature Christian should want to do. I also read a verse this week as I was just in my Bible time, and I, I read this verse in it, and it hit me under this thought here. Psalm 135 and verse 3, and it says, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises unto His name. And this is what caught my attention. For it is pleasant. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises unto His name, for it is pleasant. And I ask myself the question, pleasant to who? Pleasant to God? Pleasant to me? Pleasant to others? Then I came to the answer, yes. It's all of them. When I praise the Lord, God is well pleased with it. It's pleasant to Him. And when I praise the Lord, it's also pleasant to me too. Puts me in a better mood when I'm thanking the Lord for my blessings instead of focusing on my blisters. So a life of praise pleases the Lord. Finally, or, or fifthly, not finally, we're not at finally yet. So hang with me for just a few more minutes. We'll be, we'll be done shortly. Because I do know we have a potluck meal ready to eat here very shortly. A life of humility. A life of humility. First Kings chapter 3 uh, tells us about uh, Solomon as he was... Um, well, this is what happened in, in verse number 5. Uh, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, uh, basically, Hey, look, I don't even... I'm as a little child. I know not how to come, go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people, and that cannot be numbered or counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this, thy great a people? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. You see, Solomon at this point in his life was living pretty humbly. He said, look, I don't know how I'm going to do this as king. I don't know. I need you, God. I'm not able to do this on my own. When we realize we don't have all the answers and that we absolutely need God and his wisdom to face life, God is well pleased. By the way, God promises to liberally grant us wisdom when we ask. Isn't that a blessing? When we think, oh, I don't need you, God. I don't need to pray. I don't need your word. I can handle all of this on my own. Well, see, that's when Saul got into trouble. And that's when Solomon got into trouble too. 
And that's when you and I get into trouble, when we think we don't need God anymore. Because we know it all. Oh, I've been in church for so long. I know all this stuff. Yeah, we may know it. But do we really live it is the key. So a life of humility. And then finally, here we go. A life of generosity. And it gets back to the message and lesson at hand here. Uh, Verse number 18 of Philippians 4, it says, at the end of that verse, well-pleasing to God. This gift that this church family it was well-pleasing to God. And then in Hebrews 13, 16, but to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well-pleased. Someone once said that we are never more like God than when we give. Remember what the Bible says? For God so loved the world that He gave. When we choose to reject and refuse selfishness in our own lives and instead give to the Lord and do His work, we bring pleasure to God. 2 Corinthians 9.7 Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. When you and I give to the Lord's work, He is well pleased. And it's an opportunity we have to please the Lord. So this investment pleases the Lord. And then thirdly, this investment brings a promise of God. This investment brings a promise of God. Verse number 19. But my God shall. Aren't you glad the word shall is there? My God shall supply all. Aren't you glad the word all is there? All your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. What a tremendous promise. You know, there's several promises in the Word of God, and I really don't have time to go into all of them this morning uh, regarding giving. But there are some tremendous promises in the Bible regarding those who give. Um, I'll just share one of them with you. Luke chapter number 6 and verse 38 says, Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, and shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet, with all it shall be measured to you again. I was thinking about that verse in relation to all of this. And I thought, you know, this, you know, give and it shall be given unto you. And then it goes down and talks about how God is going to give back to us. Um, And I happen to think about, I don't know why, but I happen to think about ice cream. How many like, how many love ice cream? Raise your hand. Amen. Okay. And if you're not raising your hand, you're probably asleep. Most of us love ice cream. Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over shall men give into your bosom. I thought about that. Our children, um, we, when we say you guys can have ice cream, uh, we were giving them the, like, cereal bowls to put ice cream in. Well, then Seth starts serving it up and uh, we have no ice cream after we're done. Because all the ice cream gets put in these bowls. And so I thought, well, we'll just get smaller bowls. Well, these, these kids, what they do with it is they don't just plop it in there. They don't do that with the ice cream. They plop it in there and then they kind of smash it down and like fill the entire little dish with ice cream. And then it kind of comes over it. 
And, and they're like, yeah, you can give us small things. We're going to still fill as much ice cream as we were with the cereal bowls. So, you know, given it shall be measured unto you, good measure, press down, right? They're pressing that ice cream all the way in there, shaking together, making sure there's no air bubbles in this dish. And running over, yeah, we're going to make this thing start, you know, piling over this dish with ice cream. You know, that's that's how God gives back to us when we give to Him. He doesn't just kind of throw a couple scoops in there and calls it good. He presses it down and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that you get blessed mightily because of it. Captain Levy, a believer from Philadelphia, was once asked how he could give so much to the Lord's work and still possess great wealth. The captain replied, oh, as I shovel it out, he shovels it in, and the Lord has a bigger shovel. Or the Lord has a bigger spoon, I'm not sure which, when it comes to ice cream. But try as you might, you cannot outgive God. In my mind, it really is a foolish thing for believers to refrain from giving to the Lord's work. Because when they refuse to give, they're in essence refusing these special promises of God. And you're forgoing some of the blessings that come by giving. I think you're missing out. Um, I want to put something on the screen here. On average, Christians, I read this quote, give only 2.5% of their income to the Lord's work. And obviously, you know, most of us know the tithe is 10%. And so obviously that's under that, under that 10%. But during the Great Depression, look at this. They gave 3.3%. And this was a 2018 statistic. I know a tad old, but not too old. During the Great Depression, they gave 3.3%, and you can understand why, but what about now? Why are we giving less than we were way back when times were extremely legitimately difficult? It's because our eyes are not on things that matter for eternity. Someone might say, well, look, this is my money. I, I worked super hard for it. I shouldn't have to give it away. I mean, you know, I, I, I work hard for this. I get it. I do want us to remember this verse in Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're almost done, so hang with me for just a couple more minutes. Deuteronomy 8, verse 17. Now say in thine heart, my power... And the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. So God here is addressing the, the man who thinks, look, I've worked so hard for this. This is my money. My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember, God says, the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. You may have accumulated much in your life, but friend, it was all because of God's power in your life. Couple quick thoughts and we'll be, we'll wrap it up here. The supply. I want us to see here the supply of this promise, uh, in verse number 19. But my God shall supply all your need. Now notice all your need, not all your greed. You say, well, I've given to the Lord's work. Where's my Ferrari? You know, I give to missions every month. Where's my, you know, 10,000 square foot mansion? Where's, where's all the blessings? Well, 
Do you have food to eat? Do you have a roof over your head, clothes on your back? He supplied all your needs. Not always all your greeds, but the Lord does many times give us some of the things that we don't necessarily need that are just bonus because He loves us. So the supply, and then notice secondly here the, the source. My God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And really there is no limit to His riches. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord, the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. The Lord owns it all. Psalm 50, in verse 10, Every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee. The world is mine, and the fullness thereof. God owns it all, including your bank account and mine. He owns it all. There's that little song. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. He owns the rivers and the rocks and rills, the suns and stars that shine. Wonderful riches, more than tongue can tell. He is my father, so they're mine as well. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I know that he will care for me, and he'll care for you too. Are you giving towards the Lord's work? Many people claim verse 19 is like their favorite verse. But in context, it's for those who are giving to the Lord's work. Those who are not cannot really claim verse number 19 as their own. This is only for those believers who are giving to the Lord's work and investing in things that matter for eternity. Let me end with uh, verses 20 and 23, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Really, that's what... Our giving should be all about is God's glory, not our own. Not, hey, did you see how much I give? Did, did you see my offering? It's not about us getting glory. It's about the God getting glory. And then I like verse 23 as it wraps it up, as Paul wraps up his epistle. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Uh, the grace that he showed first and foremost was on the cross of Calvary when he took my place and yours there as the uh, substitute. Uh, We should have been the ones on the cross. We should have been crucified because of our sin, but it was Jesus who took our place. Have you trusted Him alone for your salvation? If not, I would encourage you to make today, the last Sunday of 2019, the day you become a Christian. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we're thankful for Your love for us. Thank You for the time to look at this last message in the book of Philippians. And Lord, as we look at these lessons about investing in the Lord's work, help us, Lord, to be generous. Because we know that it produces fruit. It pleases you. It also comes with a promise, a promise that you would supply all of our need according to your riches, which are really unlimited. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that, help us to be obedient in giving, and to help us to be generous and to not be selfish. And uh, Lord, help us to think about things that matter for eternity, not things that uh, are going to burn up here on this earth. Lord, I pray that uh, you would also work in hearts for those who may be here today without Christ. I pray that you would draw them to yourself.